Today's episode of the Film Stage Show is brought to you by Mubi, the online streaming cinema. For your free trial, go to mubi.com slash filmstage. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to a brand new episode of the Film Stage Show, the movie review podcast with FilmStage.com. As always, I'm your host, Brian J. Rowan. With me today, we have Michael Snydell. Hello. What up? We also have Bill Graham. <laughs> and a special guest with us today to help us talk about House of Games, 1987 uh, cinematic directorial debut of David Mamet. It's Eric Marsh. Hello, hello. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself in whatever way you deem fit to our audience? Uh, sure, yeah. I'm uh, Eric Marsh. I'm a lifelong Chicagoan and filmmaker and film educator, and I have lived my entire life within a 27-mile radius. So I'm ready to talk about uh, Chicago's native son, David Mamet. <laughs> I was about to say, so... You know, usually Michael just gets people from Chicago because he's pushing an agenda. <laughs> but this time he's gone and he's uh, accidentally maybe. I don't know, Michael, how much you knew about David Mamet, but you tripped into actually getting someone on theme. Is Michael Snydell dead? Did I kill him with my burn? What happened? I will continue to push the agenda. No worries. Okay. <laughs> you, weren't, you weren't showing up for a second. We got very concerned. I, I was thinking whether I should hide the agenda, but the agenda is already pretty obvious. So right, it's it's an open secret. It's like how uh, aliens are hybridizing humans so they can colonize our world. Like no one's talking about it, but everyone knows it's true. Oh, God damn it! <laughs> Get off QAnon or whatever the fuck it's called. <laughs> oh man, QAnon's like the karate of conspiracy theories. You know, it like takes a little bit of everything and it doesn't do any of them very well. So what is the jujitsu to transition to men? <laughs> Just going full red belt already. Um, I guess jujitsu might be the alien hybrid uh, program, um, or maybe it's a uh, flat earth theory. I don't know. That's a great uh, question. Wow. I did not put enough thought into this. I didn't know this was going to be an analogy that we were going to run with. Uh, anyway, uh, the usual stuff before we start. Um, you can find us on Twitter at Film Stage Show, Facebook, The Film Stage Show. Email us, podcast at thefilmstage.com. And, of course, you can give us a comment or rating on iTunes. Go to patreon.com slash thefilmstageshow. For as little as $1 an episode, you can become a patron of this show, which will help us to continue to maintain this show, even as economic circumstances and all kinds of life circumstances in our fair country uh, just become more and more dire. So, again, that is patreon.com slash thefilmstageshow. You get access to our Slack channel. And, of course, you get first crack at all of the raffles that we do when those happen. And since no one's going to the theaters, you're going to want them Blu-rays. So get on it. Patreon.com slash The Film Stage Show. We, of course, are also brought to you by Mubi, the curated streaming service which showcases exceptional films from around the globe. Every day, Mubi premieres a brand new film. It could be a timeless classic, a cult favorite, or an acclaimed masterpiece. Either way, it's guaranteed to be a movie you're either dying to see or one you've never heard of that you will love. Movie this past weekend had an exclusive that uh, we ought to talk about. It's Werner Herzog's newest feature, Family Romance LLC. I, I will give a nickel to anyone who tells me what LLC means. 
Yes. Limited license company. What? (laughs) I could tell you what it means. I can't remember what it stands for. (laughs) Uh, Well, Bill got it wrong, so I can tell you that much. (laughs) It is just to represent that it's a business, though. It's a limited liability company. Company. That's what I said. You said limited licensing company. Did I? Yeah. Oh, okay. I would roll the tape back, but I don't have that technology nah, presently. That's all right. <laughs> you were close though. It was obvious that you were very, very sincere in your belief that you had it right. Anyway, uh the synopsis is as such Love is a business in Family Romance LLC of the latest film from legendary Werner Herzog. Family Romance is a Tokyo-based company that offers the perfect stand-ins for absent family, friends, or admirers available to rent for any occasion. In a fictionalized take on this real-life company, Herzog follows founder Yuchi Ishii as she as he helps his clients make their dreams come true. But when the mother of 12-year-old Mahiro hires Ishii to impersonate her missing ex-husband, the line between performance and reality threatens to blur. Beguiling and utterly unique, Family Romance LLC invites us to question the lies we tell ourselves and the different roles we are all forced to play. Shot by Herzog himself, the film blends fiction storytelling with documentary-style visuals for a striking meditation on truth and artifice in the age of loneliness. So that sounds just perfect for our current quarantine situation. If you would like a free 30-day trial of MUBI, all you got to do is go to mubi.com slash filmstage. Again, that is mubi.com slash filmstage. I know that I have saved like six different movies that I want to watch, and uh, Werner Herzog's newest is definitely among them. So I look forward to doing that, either on my smart TV, my laptop, streamed anywhere. Again, that's mubi.com slash filmstage. So that's it. Um, Usually we do a quarantine update. We haven't done one in a couple weeks. Has anyone got anything new to say, Michael, Bill? I just wanted to say, uh, in lieu of updates, which I have zero, uh, <laughs> I'll just say uh, RIP to Ennio Morricone, who uh, who died today at, at, oh, 90, at 91 of, I think it was natural causes. Uh I should have checked right before this, but yeah, it's, it was kind of, it was kind of, uh, he died of being 91. I'm sorry. What you could have done, Michael, is wait until I said something. And while you were, while I was talking, you could have researched this real quick. (laughs) (laughs) Instead, you were like, let me jump in here. Uh, RIP Enio Morricone. (laughs) I don't know what and we don't know why. Uh, someone else who passed Either away, way, though, Charlie Daniels. Yes. Yeah. Who in recent years has had some thoughts that he probably should have kept to himself. <laughs> like how Taco Bell was helping the Illuminati? I don't know. Uh-oh. You know what? That's not far. That's, no, that's a legitimate tweet that he sent out. I saw it today. Oh. I was confused okay. until I realized that it was someone bringing it up because he had passed. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, so, Bill, any what's up with you? How you doing? <laughs> uh gym is back open uh yeah it's been like a few weeks now right yes um that may be taken away from us at any moment because uh texas is is a hot fucking mess right now we're we're real dumb um yeah it's it's been interesting everybody has to uh wear a mask in texas even out in public now 
Um, <laughs> I'm sure you can uh, imagine how that's going in uh, in a very uh, um, independent minded state. I would say yes, not well. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Oh, would you like to hear about Chicago? Because we're doing super well too. <laughs> are, are are you challenging us? Uh, uh, no, because <laughs> everything's bigger in Texas. So, yeah, you know. yes. yes. I indeed. mean, New York is still rocking it with the most deaths. So, um, wow. Well, I mean, yeah. Maryland's actually doing pretty well. Our numbers are trending downward still, um, and we're we're doing great. I don't know. Well, not, nice for you. I know it's pretty awesome, Eric Marsh. <laughs> how has your quarantine been? <laughs> Oh, well, it's been uh, it's been exciting. I was uh, teaching virtually and, uh, you know, uh, just weathering the storm and uh, watching some movies to cope. What else is there to do? (laughs) Um, I will say that uh, I'm I'm back to full production of hand sanitizer at the distillery. We had a massive order from a a big public university nearby that I don't know if I can name (laughs) just because. Just because I don't know how that kind of stuff works. But so, yeah, uh, if I'm incredibly tired over the next couple of weeks, that is why. Uh, back in the saddle, filling a 2,000 bottle <laughs> order. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> um, and if you would like to give to the uh, GoFundMe that I always talk about, where we're trying to make hand sanitizer to give out for free, uh, yeah, go to SchmidtSpirits.com. Help us do that. Ooh. Otherwise, uh, things are much as they have been. Um, every day is a new banal nightmare. Uh, but what do we got? We got movies. We got movies to help us through the dark times. And we chose a great one today. Uh, that is tipping my hand for my personal opinion on this film. It is House of Games. The directorial debut of playwright David Mamet, who also wrote the screenplay. And this movie stars Lindsay Krauss and Joe Montaigne. Um, and it also has, uh, like just all time, all-star character actor, JT Walsh. Yeah. I thought that was, um, damn, why can't I remember his name? The guy that played in, uh, age of Ultron. Uh, oh, you thought it was Spader. Yeah. I did think it was Spader. I guess I really, really did. You know, if you put glasses on them and have them glare into a camera, uh, Walsh and Spader have a similar, Walsh has uh I was looking at some photos of him and he uh he got a little bit bigger, I will say. Um and so yeah, he doesn't resemble Spader as much in his later years, but definitely here I was like I didn't realize Spader was in there, but I mean W H uh uh hurt hurt? No. W H Macy. Yeah, W. H. Macy is in this yeah. as Are well. Are we not calling him William H. Macy? Are no, we calling that, him W. H. It is W. H. in the credits of the oh. film, which is fascinating. And then Ricky J. We haven't mentioned Ricky J. Yes, Jay, obviously I was going Jay to talk about Ricky J. Because Ricky yeah. J. is my man. And the only, ce- this is going to sound dark, the only celebrity who's died in the past decade who I have felt any actual personal sadness over. I have questions, but I'm not going to ask them. <laughs> well, well, you can ask them when we get towards the end of our review, uh, when we wrap up with a bunch of crazy-ass tangents. Or you could just hit me up after we're done. But anyway, yeah, so we're here to talk about House of Games. Um, let's play a little bit of the trailer before we get into our review. David Mamet. 
He's got a feel for the way people talk and think and cheat and love. And he's got the Pulitzer Prize to prove it. Now America's most exciting writer makes his directorial debut. Join him in the House of Games. Slowly look over my left shoulder and tell me if you see him. Yes, he's just crossing the street. The players. All right, so... This movie is about a psychiatrist who's on the rise after writing a very popular book who becomes embroiled in the world of con men. And that is as much as I feel willing to say right now. Um, I got to say up front, I love that trailer. I love just the audacity of the dude being like, David Mamet understands everything about human nature and he's got the Pulitzer Prize to back it up. It's a bold move. <laughs> That's just how I want to be. I need a Pulitzer Prize so that someone can say that about me. It's just like slamming your your credentials down on the desk. But anyway, we're here to talk about House of Games. Uh, this is a uh, classic episode, so it's a spoiler melee. So if you haven't seen the movie, just be aware that even though we'll probably just through natural progression to talking about stuff, work the spoilers later, that they could come out at any time. So uh, if Eric wanted to open this by literally saying, if anyone dies in this movie, he has that full right. To that end, Eric, what did you think of House of Games? And uh, I also got to ask everyone on this podcast when we come to them, are you like a total Mammoth fan? Like, what's your what's your deal with Mammoth? I find that he's a guy that people have opinions on. (laughs) I have. Yes, I have a lot of opinions on Mammoth as a one time lover of David Mammoth and current Uh, I guess I'm largely ambivalent uh, about him. I mean, he doesn't really work anymore in any meaningful capacity uh, in my world, unless you count calling into like Breitbart radio uh, work or whatever. Um, But yeah, I mean, he was a guy. So I'm, you know, I'm on the sort of younger side of the video store generation. So House of Games was a movie I saw you know, when I was younger, when I was a teenager, and I loved it, you know, it just blew my mind. And I've returned to it many times over the years. And I still I still love it to this very day. Uh, the rest of his work, I'm I'm mixed on like many people. But I think, uh, you know, he's kind of a kind of a psycho, but he's also kind of a genius uh, at times or was anyway. I I'm that that song sweet but a psycho has ruined the word psycho for me because the second you said that <laughs> my brain started playing it and I was like is there a joke in there can I do this and so I apologize for the uh, two seconds of radio silence as I tried to rip my brain away from that Death. song and back Death to actually being the host of our podcast. podcast yeah <laughs> all right um Michael Snydell, I know you have a history with this movie in particular, and uh, I know that I have like forced you at gunpoint to watch some extra Mammoth. So uh, what are your thoughts on Mammoth in general and House of Games in particular? Um, yeah, my my feelings with Mammoth are so um, I, I had told I, I've told this story, I think, on uh, when we used to do roundtable episodes <laughs> a thousand years ago. Um, so House of Games was actually one of my first R-rated movies. Um, and yeah, so I'm, I'm giving away my age there a little bit. I, I was born in, in 91 and my dad let me watch it, I don't know, maybe like 10 or 11 uh, in part because he remembered it being a really good movie. So, And my dad and I, let's just say, 
we differed on opinions <laughs> with a lot of movies. So it was one of those weird things that even though I hadn't seen it since I was 10 or 11, uh, you know, almost, you know, 20 years ago, um, I had remembered deeply loving it and feeling like I was was uh, being guided by someone deeply in control, you know, even beyond being able to recognize the, you know, many literary influences and the certain stylization that Mamet's work has. Um, it was just something that felt so uh, mysterious and, and felt so, um, yeah, I don't know. It's hard to, <laughs> it's hard to remember what, what my feelings were like. But then my first real influence, or excuse me, my first real experience with him was then Glengarry Glenn Ross um, uh-huh. in late high school. Is, is that was something, you know, that became uh, such a regular, um, uh, you know, go-to thing for, for like very signature writing in film. So that was something I went to and liked quite a bit. Um, but it wasn't necessarily something that I immediately wanted to go back to. And then I, I've seen scattered things. Uh, I, this weekend, I not only rewatched house of games, but I watched red belt and Ronin for the first time. Ronin is not directed by him. It's uh, directed by John Frankenheimer, but, um, and then I've also about seen- to say, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's different. <laughs> no, I know. But uh, I mention all of that because I think uh, this is where I can kind of get into my uh, opinion after all that prologue is so I I had the I, I kind of went down uh, on this movie. I, I used to think this was a great movie and now I think it's a good movie. And so what was helpful about watching Red Belt, which was also directed by Mamet, and watching Ronin, which is Mamet's dialogue with a different director, is I was able to parse a little more what to make of House of Games. Because House of Games is strange in the sense that the whole movie is almost in this robotic cadence. Like you have Lindsay Krauss, who who is this very like cold analytical psychiatrist and that totally makes sense for her but then everybody else speaks in this in this very meticulous very like colorful dialogue and sometimes it sounds it sounds awkward and i i think I, i'm going to complicate this and I'll elaborate on it more shortly after this. But I think what's a little bit weird about this film is that I think it would work better if the moments that aren't in the con had this different performance style, because it holds a little less water to me that everyone is directed in this exaggerated way, in this certain like clipped way of ending dialogue. And Speaking instead to something like Red Belt, which is arguably much, or excuse me, not arguably, is much later and should be noted this is his first film. That is something that feels, it feels extremely um, organic in terms of the language. Like those characters feel like they're born to speak like that. And so that was just kind of the the interesting thing I had. So not only that this film that I had really strong memories from, but one that I can remember, you know, had that signature dialogue. Uh, going back to that, certainly a little bit of shine came off it, but it's still, I think it's still an incredibly fascinating film and one 
whose ambiguity I don't think I grasped on the first watch. So yeah, that's where I'm kind of at in House of Games, and I'm I'm looking forward to talking about it because there's I think there's a lot there. All right, Bill Graham. Yeah, um, just kind of looking over his career. I mean, I I think definitely Glenn Gary Glenn Ross is the first one that I really kind of uh, remember. Um, but I, I think I've seen Wag the Dog, I've seen Ronin, I've seen a couple of these others um, that he wrote, uh, but I haven't seen that many of his director uh, directorial uh, style. So I'm not sure what to make of this. I did see Spartan, which is maybe not a good thing. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah. Burn and disagree, by the way. Yeah, I, I love Spartan. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I remember not liking it when I saw it. So, um, but that being uh, neither here nor there. Um, yeah. I really enjoyed this film. Um, this is my first time to watch it. Uh, I didn't know what to expect at all. Um, but it does, it, it is interesting. His dialogue obviously is, is pretty famous. Um, and in particular, this one seems to be, uh, really just kind of nailing some of his, his, uh, pacing and just the way that the dialogue is delivered, especially towards the end when she's like talking to him. And it almost seems like she's, she's about to set him up to be like, uh, stung by like, by like police or something. I was just like, Oh wow. That's, uh, that's some chunky dialogue that she is delivering right there. Um, but no, I, I really enjoyed this, but, um, having just watched it, there's a lot to kind of digest and, and figure out. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see where everybody else lands and where this conversation kind of goes. As for me, um, I feel like it's, it's not a secret that I am deeply in love with the works of David Mamet. Um, I constantly say on this show that one of my favorite genres is the con and you cannot like a con movie without liking at least one of David Mamet's films. It's just like the law. Um, whether it be house of games, whether it be heist, um, really literally, literally all of his goddamn movies. There I was is going to say, is there some- even one that's not a con. I was you could make a, an, an argument even that State in Maine is a con movie because movies are cons in themselves in multiple ways, including right, right them abusing the small town <laughs> using it or whatever. Right, and, and uh, the fact so. that like there is at at a certain point just like a whole switcheroo plot um, with uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character giving testimony in front of a not quite real judge. Mm. Um. Yeah, I guess I, I'm fine saying that. Um, and what else? I mean, like even even Oleana, which is so I watched Ooh. I watched House of Games and then I've just been on a mammoth bender for the last couple of days. Um, and I saw Oleana for the first time. And even that, I would argue, like there there is a question of like, you know, it's a confidence game because everyone's trying to get one over on someone. It's it's a two hander. Where literally there's only dialogue from William H. Macy's character and um and the, the female in it whose name is escaping me and whose actress's name is escaping me as well. Uh Oleana is a 
A real, a real dark movie. Has anyone else in this podcast seen Oleana? Oh, yeah. Okay, great. So you know what I'm talking about. Um, her name is Carol, <laughs> yeah. and she is I played Deborah by Eisen- Deborah Eisenstadt. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Brian. <laughs> My, you had it. Michael, you, your research <laughs> is to figure out how, uh, what's-his-face died? Enio. Sure, sure. Sounds good. <laughs> um, but I mean, like, yeah, I mean, all of his all of his stuff is about people talking and through talking, hoping to affect the world in some way, um, either through guiding someone to their side through persuasion or through the act of a confidence game. And I love it. And it's great. And he for me, it's it's weird because I know we just talked about the social network and I invade against Aaron Sorkin. And his samey sounding dialogue and how all of his characters sound the same. And they all speak in this very mannered way that I hate. That is clever at first, but that you grow to hate. And for whatever reason, even though Mamet could be accused of similarly just giving everyone the same kind of dialogue. And also having a very heavily mannered way of speech. I just think there's something about mammoths that lands better with me i like the halting i like the repetition of phrases not because people are like being clever and batting them back and forth but just because like this person just gets hammered on their own phraseology and just uses it and one of the things that i actually liked about oleana is the fact that uh william h macy is like a david mammoth character and carol is just there to constantly say like what is that word you just used? What is that term you just used? And are you sure that it means that? Um, and it's is a, it kind of a Virginia Woolf uh, style thing in, in a sense, like a chamber piece in that way. Um, maybe or who's afraid of not not Virginia Woolf? It's, I mean, me. it's I, I do what you meant. Um, it it definitely takes place in a chamber. Um, it's, <laughs> it it takes wow. place all in one office. Though it's kind of funny because I assume that the play takes place all in one office, but in the movie they like move between a couple of rooms because I guess like man, it was just like, look, it's a movie now. We've got to be a little more dynamic. Um, but yeah, I um I just love it. It's uh it's great. And so to speak specifically about House of Games, I think this is like the fifth movie of his that I saw. Um, though it is funny that this movie was apparently produced or released in 1987. Um, yeah, apparently it was October of 1987 which means that I was born and then David Mamet became a film director. And I feel like that just makes sense um, that I would have a life that extends as long as uh, David Mamet's cinematic life, because the man has probably influenced my appreciation for dialogue and, you know, the way that I wish people spoke and my love of a certain kind of cinematic genre more than anyone else. And house cards or house of cards, house of games uh, definitely has a place there. Um, also, I love Joe Montana. Guy freaking rules, and he's great in this movie. Ricky Jay is awesome. Uh, again, I could go on like a forty-minute rant about how awesome Ricky Jay is. So, what is what is Montaigne from? Isn't he? Isn't I mean, he's he kind of, on like a, a show? Oh yeah, he's in like CSI. Like, the like, like yeah, it, Criminal Minds. Oh yes, his, there we go. His ah. long-running TV thing, but he's been in uh, he's been in a bunch of stuff. You know? He's yeah. he's Fat Tony on The Simpsons. Oh, that's right. He's in a lot of Mammoth stuff too. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, he's uh, the man is the man is everywhere. I was about to say it's almost hard to say because like I know he's probably been in like seven movies this year alone, even though seven movies haven't been released this year. 
Um, I mean, he was in Red Belt. I mean, he he's one of those yeah. guys like Jay who pops up in a lot of Mammoth's films because I think Mammoth just likes him and he gets the uh, he gets the patter. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, he's he's great. Um, yeah, he's uh, he was in uh, some of Mammoth's plays back in the day, so they have uh, that bond because he was the original. I don't know if you guys know this. He was the original Ricky Roma in Glenn Gary Glenn Ross on oh. stage. So the Al Pacino oh, okay. role was originated by Montaigne. Interesting. I feel like that is a very different performance. It must have been. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah. Uh, Brian, I'm kind of curious, though. I, I mean, it doesn't sound like you have similar feelings about a certain awkwardness specifically in House of Games. But if, do you feel like there is a, uh, a, maybe not sizable, but do you feel a difference in the way this dialogue is delivered compared to some of those other mammoth things, even the ones, you know, you marathoned before this episode. (laughs) Um, I think that it's, it's different in this movie and I can't tell if that's just because of the characters or, you know, the fact that it's the (laughs) eighties and I just don't know. Um, I, I, I sense a difference. I sense that his, his acting uh, directions and everything have gotten a little more fluid as he has gone on, but um, this movie doesn't feel too entirely out of a piece. And I think that especially towards the end, once the con is kind of fallen apart and you get that scene of all the guys at the table, mm. you do get a little more of that naturalism poking through though. Naturalism in, in the, the case of a mammoth film or script is very hard to wrestle with. Oh, you do feel a natural. You see, I wanted I was trying to look for that in that last scene, and I'm just not sure I can make that argument. But it's interesting that you you point that out. Yeah, I felt it a little more. I mean, like, you know, but and I think that part of it is like this is just a little more serious than a lot of his other films. Uh, State in Maine is a laugh out loud comedy, really. Um <laughs> I feel like the Spanish prisoner even has a little bit of comedy and not just because it's got Steve Martin in it. Um, I watched another Glenn one. Gary has a lot of stakes, you know, even as much as it's so much dialogue, I, I feel like you really feel for, you know, um, Oh my God. Um, Jack lemon. Yes. Thank you. Uh, for Jack lemon. Like I feel like, and even Red Bull, Red Belt, uh, having watched that recently, like a Chiwetel Ejiofor is like, his dilemma, you know, it, it continually gets heavier and heavier. So I, d- yeah. I don't know. Um, I'm not I'm not trying to fight you on, on House of Games. I, I'm just curious, especially as someone who's watched as much Mammoth as you. Um, I, I was just curious where, whether you did feel a certain. Uh, I, I, yeah, I guess it's pacing of dialogue more than more than anything for me. I do feel it. I th- I think that um you know like I said I think it's just like a first film. I think that it's you know maybe uh, you know the the character choices that are being made. Um, you know it, what's weird to me is that like if you look at you know and this kind of gets us into the plot, but uh, Lindsay Krause's character uh, Margaret, when she's talking with her friend at lunch, she is a lot more energetic and fluid than she is when she's talking to Mike. And everyone else during the cons. So I feel like there is a kind of performativeness that seeps in. But I think that, you know, with the way that Mammoth's dialogue and everything works, it can be kind of hard to suss that out and feel it at first. 
I think, uh, or I guess I wonder, um, you know, with her being a psychiatrist, right, that sort of cool and distant kind of persona and interactions she has with other people, I think is certainly has something to do with her kind of, uh, you know, stiltedness. Because I do agree, I think in the scenes, you know, with her mentor, she's sort of relaxed more so uh, than the others. But I mean, ultimately, she is sort of performing. I mean, everyone's performing ultimately, for the most part, in everything that we see. So it is a, a question of, of acting, right? And the movie also makes it pretty clear that she is under a harrowing amount of stress and is not handling it well. Um, she's at lunch with her friend and says, like, the only pressures in my life. And her friend is like, uh, pressures? And she said, no, I said pleasures. And she's like, no, you definitely <laughs> said pressures. And then it's, I think this was the first time that I watched it because I knew we were going to be talking about it here. And I was like, uh, I have to, like, use a little more of my critical analytical mind and not just let everything wash over me. I think this is the first time that, like, uh, her, like, the unspoken backstory of this Margaret character really, like, spun out to me. Because, like, the pressures thing I always picked up on, and I, I had forgotten, and I don't know the last time I watched this movie before this week, that she, after meeting the the murderess in jail, you know, says, like, you know, my father keep you know kept calling her a whore and then her friend again is like you know my your your father you know you said like your father and so i feel like uh-huh. there is a kind of something bubbling under the surface with this woman that i don't think i really truly picked up on before that that makes her stiltedness feel a little more a little more, again, naturalism is such a weird thing to place on a man film, but a little more character sure. motivated, a little more of a choice than just like, you know, oh, maybe Lindsay Krause is just having trouble with the mammoth dialogue. Cause she, she nails it. Like when she's talking, again, one of the things that I love about Mammoth's writing is the way that he, and again, in opposition to Sorkin, this is going to be a great episode, by the way, because usually when I talk about movies, everything is in opposition to a Marvel film. And this is the opportunity for me to be like full on elitist asshole and just be like everything that I'm about to say is in opposition to an Aaron oh, Sorkin boy. film. Like which Pulitzer Prize winning oh, playwright no. um, am I really going to go on for? But so like Sorkin people like, you know, they, they'll just like say the same thing back and forth to each other. Like if you've ever watched The West Wing, if you've ever watched any of his stuff, you know, it'll be like, you know, the the the. I can't think of a I can't think of a an example right now. Then I refuse to make one. Great. But in a mammoth film, it's as I said, it's very clear that these people have latched onto this specific phrase or this specific word as the best way to to put forward their idea. And they will ask questions, answer questions, and not speak them as though they are questions. So like for instance, when she's talking to her friend at lunch in that first lunch scene, she's talking about this woman who who says like, you know, there's a girl who turns around, there's a face of an animal. Mm-hmm. And then she says, what is the animal she cannot say, or she does not know. And it's just like that concept of like the animal, let's just take with the animal. And again, that feels almost like a psychiatric tick to like, you know, hold on to a specific key phrase and keep hammering at it. And Krauser really like hits that scene really well. Um, that is like the first moment in the film that I feel what would I guess become like the man, the mammoth cord that he carries through in so many more of his movies. 
Well, like I think that's why it's so, you know, I, I find it really, uh, the, you know, the key moment early on, right, is when she hugs the patient, right? Mm-hmm. When she violates the, the, you know, the rules of distance and decorum because she feels so helpless uh, as a psychiatrist. And I think that's a very unique moment, right? Because it's like this demonstration of warmth, um, you know, that sort of comes out of nowhere. Hmm. Yeah, I think you could compare that even not that uh, not that much earlier in the film with uh, when she's talking to Bobby, Bobby, sorry, Billy Han uh, and like, you know, her whole her whole demeanor, even when he takes out the gun is, you know, she is keeping, you know, totally detached. She is like the way that she speaks in all of those. It doesn't even give a hint of warmth or even like, you know, it, it. it communicates that this whole time, I, I love that point where someone's saying something really traumatic and she looks at her watch and is like, oh, we, we have time for one more. <laughs> I'm, I'm paraphrasing, <laughs> but just like that certain, that certain like one eye always on, you know, or one eye always thinking about the business aspect, <laughs> even as she's meant to be emotionally involved. Hmm. Bill, you had a little hmm, and I'm curious if you had any feelings on that. <laughs> no, I, I do love the touch of, of her, like, looking at her watch and, and being a little disconnected from all of this stuff. Like, she she does have a little bit of, of that going on. Um, I don't know. Yeah. That's She's like I mean. a sheet in their back in the background, I believe, in that in that scene as well, which gives you another sense of like this certain, um, you know, this certain like trying to communicate a sense of intimacy, but it's also so cold and like, so ramshackle in a way. Well, I think one of the key things that Mammoth's getting at, right, is that for him, uh, definitely psychiatry is is a con, right? I mean, and that's everything like folds into itself in this movie, right? There's uh, her practice, which he definitely thinks is a con uh, as, you know, the writer director. He sort of again, right? That's why she's the perfect mark, right? Um so I don't know. Yeah, there's something between right the relationship between magic, between confidence games, between psychology, cinema, all that stuff, uh, all those relationships, which often right, uh, Brian, as you pointed out, manifests in a sort of like usually a one-on-one sort of like mentor type relationship in mammoth movies. Because uh, yes. again, it's all about that sort of power struggle uh, of all these. You know, everyone's conning everyone. Yeah, he's in love with the mentor mentee thing. Um, that that like it, again, could you name one that does not involve that? I don't think that you could. It's I, I um, curious. it's a big thing. I do <laughs> want to say though, I think I I think that Mamet inherently appreciates the efficacy of the con, and I think that like just saying that he thinks that psychiatry is a con. And we keep calling it a con, and that kind of feels like it's it's a dirty version of what it is, which is confidence like game. Like disingenuous. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And um, as Mike says, like, you know, it's called a confidence game. Why? Because you give me your confidence? No, because I give you mine. And 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 to that end, and first of all, that's just another great line of Mammoth Dialogue. He's saying something, he asks a question, he asks another question, and then he gives you the answer. And it's all one person who's just not letting the other person speak. 
which we can we can talk about, you know, for hours on end. Mamet's love of people running over other human beings with their words, um, which is another thing that he does to great effect in Oleana, uh, a movie that is as as beguiling as it is infuriating. Um, but I mean, like to that end, the, the end of the confidence game, and it's you giving your confidence to someone else. I mean, when she's in the prison with the woman. The woman says, like, there are people who are normal and and the doctor only asks her questions like she isn't trying to force an idea on her. She's trying to, again, give this woman her confidence in the fact that the woman will come to the answers herself. You know, she says, are there? And the patient says, yes, there are. But and then, you know, (laughs) she just she just keeps latching on to phrases that this woman says, you know, first is there are people who are normal are there. And then she says, yes, there are, but, and then the doctor says, but what? And then the patient says, but I don't know what those people do. And like, that is her coming to an understanding about her own inability to operate in society, not because, you know, she had confidence in the woman she was speaking to, but because the woman she was speaking to had the con gave her her confidence that she would come to the answer on her own. There is something really interesting to me. I I have to admit that I didn't see Mamet's view of psychology as like decidedly negative or I I still have a certain, or maybe to put it instead in the case, uh, in the case of specifically the con, I think you're absolutely right, Brian. Like he appreciates the con. He loves the almost, you know, the like necessary convolutions of that system. But like, I, I do kind of wonder whether he ultimately respects someone more or, or like Mike more than Margaret. Like that's, that's interesting that I guess, yeah, both you and Eric implied that um, he, he does, doesn't have respect for what Margaret does. And, and I think, I'm not saying you can't make that argument, but I'm, I guess I'm more curious. What, what do you think Mamet thinks of the con men besides appreciating them and finding them fun to write about? I think he, I mean, I think he loves them. I mean, I think that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty clear, right? I mean, he, you know, he loves Ricky J. And in effect, too, I mean, we should mention, right, that a big, I think a big reason why this film is so good is because Ricky J came up with all the gags. Um, Ricky J is a guy. That's a guy you want to have on set, you know? Sure. Again, I mean, I'm, Ricky J is, is, um, for anyone who doesn't know, Ricky Jay is a magician who has been in many of your favorite movies. Um, he was in The Prestige. He was the narrator for uh, the opening of Magnolia and the opening of The Brothers Bloom. He's been in, like, I think every David Mamet film except for Oleana. And even then, he probably is, like, somewhere in the background just, like, you know, palming a book. But um, He's really fun in Tomorrow Never Dies. <laughs> I don't remember him in Tomorrow Never Dies. And now I'm upset that I now have to watch that movie. Um, he, if you go on YouTube, right, and look up Ricky Jay and his 52 assistants and just watch some of those clips, because magic can be nerdy and boring as shit. So when I tell people like, hey, Ricky Jay rules, they're like, no, no, Brian, I refuse to accept that. And I, you want to talk about a confidence game. Nothing is more confident than in college deciding that a way to impress 
a woman who you are interested in is to show her a Ricky J video because there is such a such a giant opportunity for failure there if she doesn't like it. But everyone who I've ever shown a Ricky J video to is totally on it because the man is a master storyteller, both with his words, which is one of the reasons why Mamet loves him, I'm sure, because his patter during his performances is so circuitous and so stacked with terminology and so fast and so brilliant and amusing as he is with his hands and everything um, that he's just, he's just a wonder to watch. And, and he also was a student and studier of, of magic and cons and flim flam. I mean, he, what was the name of his book? Like uh, flammable women and learned pigs or something like that. And it's just about like the it's just about like the the whole history. Yeah, it's Learned Pigs and Fireproof Women. Uh it's a book that he wrote that is about just like the history of weird entertainers, you know, flimflam men, sideshow people, magicians, you know, he's just he knows so much. And so him and David Mamet finding each other I have to imagine that birds sang and a rainbow appeared because these two men are made for each other and having Ricky J there to like be his constant. I don't even know what you would call him. Like your, your sham consultants. <laughs> yeah. The, well, there's a really famous story where, you know, when they do uh, after the poker game, when they go outside and they demonstrate uh, the short con to her, um, Mamet had just written in the script, like, and then they demonstrate a short con and, you know, they didn't ultimately want to actually reveal a known and proven con. So Ricky J invented an original con on the spot to film. Yeah. So the whole gag, the money and the envelope, that's <laughs> not even something in tradition. That's just something he came up with that sort of demonstrated the tradition without actually giving away the secrets of the tradition. Yeah, because he didn't want to. He didn't want to destroy the 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 mystique. He didn't want to betray the confidence of the con men. Um, I feel like there's a part of me that, like, in in the wrong kind of life, had I taken the wrong turns somewhere, I would have become a con man of this kind mm-hmm. of ilk. Like, it just <laughs> like there. I is this this is one of those things where I don't know if everyone did this, and I'm just like making too big of a deal of it, but like. Did you ever go to another city and pretend to be someone else and not drop the act the entire time you were there? No, I can t- safely say I've never done that. Have you ever done that for like one night? Yes. Okay, so Eric's on my side. Michael Snydell, did you ever? No, but it's the least surprising thing in the world that you've done that. <laughs> I have done it a few times. Um, well, of course, of course. Yeah. Never learn his lesson. No, um, it was it was great. I spent one uh, crazy day in Austin pretending to be uh, an Irish tourist. Um, it was pretty freaking awesome. I, I got into a weirdly exclusive club that was celebrating Mexican Independence Day. Uh, I met a man who had his thumbs cut off. It was weird. Uh, it was a really strange time. And that just was an in- alphabet soup of, of a couple sentences there you had, Brian. <laughs> I, I guarantee that it all makes sense. If you ever have time, I'll just I'll just spill the whole story to you. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it's just something that I do. I love 
And the way that you pull it off is by putting yourself in the disadvantaged position. Um, what you do is you make it so that the person that you're with feels as though they are protective of you and are guiding of you and that you need them. And they don't realize that that way you can bleed them dry. Um, which is a horrible way to put it, but yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, I, there's, there's just an appeal to this to me. That's, that's amazing. And that, um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's just, it's so interesting. It also is another way that I can kind of get behind understanding, um, Margaret's whole, whole situation here where she sees it and she's so intrigued by it. And then just falls into it so easily. And I, I think one of the things that was weirdest for me, I forgot how quick this movie is. Like, it's like four days at most. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a little bananas, but it's 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 truly effective because it it kind of gives you the sensation of like, oh, yeah, she is just dying to do this. She is so excited for this. But I think the other fascinating contradiction that I that I find here, and and I think you and Eric are, are totally right in you know uh, you know uh, talking about Ricky Jay and then talking about how much he he does love these characters. But I do still find it fascinating that he's also he's also a director who's deeply interested in a code and principles. And mm-hmm. in the end, you know these con men they have a code, but they don't. You know, Mike, for instance, doesn't really have his principles. The fact that he, you know, becomes such a scummy dude the moment he realizes that, you know, she's not bluffing with the gun is like, you know, in a way it kind of upends the actual elegance of that certain con. Like the fact that they were so cruel after that, I I find it so fascinating. And then, you know, I won't reveal the ending of of Red Belt here, but that's another film that is playing with what happens when people play to their principles and whether they are, you know, punished and whether they find fulfillment in different ways. So I think that's more why I'm talking about sympathies of of someone like Mike. I, I don't mean to suggest that he doesn't deeply love these characters but i do again find the weird messy way that like codes and particularly the idea of authenticity factors into this movie i think that's yeah that's a great point i think one of the i think one of the things that mammoth and certainly ricky jay would tell you is that you know sort of historically in the uh, sort of like, you know, the annals of criminals or the sort of hierarchy of criminals. Uh, the con man is this sort of platonic ideal because they don't use violence, right? So it's seen as this sort mm, yeah. of like pure art uh, sort of, again, like magic or, or what have you. Um, sure. And that's and, and that's why I think, right, the end is so fascinating uh, when Mike just, I mean, first of all, when she overhears them at table and it's you know it's really just you know heartbreaking for her right Mm -hmm. it's 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 bad uh and then the way he reacts when she pulls the gun and sort of you know the the cards are down the chips are in uh it muddies the water right you know oh we're not supposed to necessarily go like oh right this guy's not this smooth con man he's kind of a huge piece of shit but he's also a smooth con man (laughs) In that way, you know, and this is this the people are going to crash their cars rolling their eyes at this. 
his con is the greatest con of all. Oh, no. I mean, the persona that he puts on to pull the con is is a con in and out of itself. It's uh, it's it's pretty awesome. So many layers, like in Heist. Like you watch Heist, and you're like, "There's 17 different attempted cons in this movie," <laughs> and the fact that at the end you still feel satisfied is um is crazy. Heist, I think, is also the height of Mamet. Just being like, what can I get away with saying that people will still think is cool? Um, I forgot that House of Games, it doesn't have very many crazy turns of phrase. It's it's more or less relying on, you know, pretty straightforward dialogue. You know, there's nothing as, as uh, inscrutable as everybody wants money. That's why it's called money. Well, it's like sleight of hand in that way. Like, <laughs> you, you know, you're watching one thing that seems pretty direct, but here's what's being orchestrated on the other side. Yeah. And even um, even the Spanish prisoner deals with a lot more halting, run over sentence construction than House of Games does. And I think part of that is that in House of Games, these people really want Margaret to be pulled in and so they can't do the usual thing that happens in a man movie where if someone takes too long to answer someone just starts speaking again yeah again i think it's because the whole movie sort of takes place inside this fiction Mm -hmm. um yeah it definitely is different than say right cops in homicide you know whatever um, you know macy and montaigne are saying to each other as cops in a car in that movie uh is much different than anything you know constructed within the fiction of house of games certainly yeah outside of her patience and her friend at lunch she doesn't have an honest conversation in this entire movie because what, everyone what that she's ta- like, like she doesn't have a conversation where she is not getting played. Okay. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you know, she is speaking honestly. She is, is talking from her soul. Everyone else is not. I mean, uh, Billy, you know, screws her over. Mike obviously screws her over. Everyone is constantly playing her aside from the patients that she sees and her friend at lunch. And it's a it's a little it's it's a little crazy because I don't know of any more any other of his films that so isolates the primary character. Even in Red Belt, Mm. Chiwetel Ejiofor's character has uh, Emily Emily Mortimer. Yes. Yeah, Emily Mortimer's character. And even his his snowflake his uh, his person who he trains with, like he's really a confidant for most of that. Yeah, the cop Joe. Uh, no, uh, the, uh, the person who he trains with at the, at the gym, like kind of his, his, uh, it's okay. Go on. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh yeah. I know who you're talking about. Anyway. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, um, and this movie is, it, you are truly, Margaret is truly isolated, which makes her final betrayal so intense because she thought she had found a new place to be. And she's realizing now exactly how deeply conned she was you know in in red belt chuatella juifor when he finds out the depths of the machinations against him can still go and talk to emily mortimer and get slapped into doing the right thing and in this movie margaret has no one which is why uh she she decides to turn the con around and bring a gun for when it all goes bad 
I think Joey in that sense is really interesting. Mike Nussbaum in mm-hmm. the sense that like he has this certain like avuncular look and yet he is kind of crass from the go. I mean, a part of that, I, I want to be clear, like part of that I have to attribute to uh, Mamet's general gender politics the year that this came out. But like he's pretty crass from the go, you know, uh, calling her abroad, like how quickly he calls her, you know, a bitch when he smacks her a couple yeah, times. Yeah, when like, things go so, wrong, he immediately. <laughs> yeah, he's not level headed at all. <laughs> Which is amazing because contrast that to, you know, when they uh, after they escape from the hotel and they're cleaning the car and and the Nussbaum character goes, never in my life, never in my life have I seen such violence or whatever. (laughs) And you're like, oh, my God, you were just you were just hitting, you know, obviously it's an act. But like, my God, you were just like hitting this woman in the face. And and now you're you're blaming her. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it, it, it is like there I, I will say there not that you really care because it's all so slick and we haven't talked about visually. I think what's crazy, too, this film is gorgeously uh, shot by Mamet and uh, Juan Ruiz Anchia. Like it's it's a lot of like very, um, very characteristic, like noir shots, you know, like fog and, and smoke over, you know, a, a small lamp in, a, in, in an alleyway. And, then, you know, it's, it's a lot of like very evocative, um, evocative, like general establishing shots and things along those lines. But I still think when it comes to spaces, it, it's really dynamic. Like I love that. Uh, when, um, uh, excuse me, when, uh, Margaret is kind of inching to the door where the, the cop is inside the bathroom and you get this great rotating profile shot of her. So she's half covered in shadows and everything. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like this is really, you know, for being a first film, like it, it really has a, has a great visual <laughs> sense. You want to hear my hot take? Please. This is Mammoth's best looking and visually designed film and and of any of his films i think wow whatever it is to me it's i don't know if it's because he wasn't thinking about it i know he's you know said that anchia basically you know designed the whole noir look of it and designed the shots and he, he was working with the actors mostly which is very much a theater director kind of thing to do yeah but i don't know it it has a visual flourish uh, and it has a, a great use of space that I find lacking in some of his later work. I revisited Heist recently because I was teaching a Heist film course this past winter. Uh, uh, and I was sort of shocked at how like visually inept that movie feels to me. And I like it. You know, it's a, it's a good time. But something to me feels very clunky in a way where House of Games feels very elegant and restrained and beautiful. I don't know. Maybe it's just a personal thing. I think that I. I mean, I think that's fair. I think that this movie has the the least action of most of Mammoth's films. Um, yeah. I think that also just it's weird, you know, because the the noir look helps every movie that it's in. Uh, if, sure. if anyone knows anything about me, I love con <laughs> game. I love con movies. I love noir movies. So like the shadows, the steam, the introduction just of in the, the pocket. <laughs> <laughs> the introduction of the House of Games itself is great. What's weird is that I feel like the movie that visually approximates this movie the most is, from Mammoth is um, Edmund. Sure. Yeah, which is another movie that I feel like 
people probably didn't <laughs> react well to when they first saw it. Like, I can't imagine. Oh, and I didn't even realize Mamet didn't direct that movie. So that explains a no, lot of Stuart it. Stuart Gordon did. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, oh. They're old, they were old pals from the stage in Chicago. Gordon and Mamet, like, came up in the theater together. So that's like an old, another old relationship. Yeah. Um, that came that, to fruition. <laughs> and that movie has uh, Joe Montaigne in it. It also has William H. Macy in it. And it has uh, Julia Stiles in it, who um, huh. I guess was coming from a state in Maine. But um, I yeah, mean that's pretty good and disturbing movie. <laughs> uh, Edmund. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god, this movie's freaking crazy. I watched it and I was, I was like, I'm very glad I didn't watch this with anyone, um, because I feel like they would report me to the cops. <laughs> it's um, it's very much in that kind of falling down sort of thing. Uh. It's uh, and so you just watch it, you feel deeply uncomfortable the entire time. <laughs> a um, Jeffrey Combs cameo in this. Speaking of Stuart Gornish, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, uh, God, now I really want to watch Edmund. I'm just gonna ruin my whole week. Oh, it's it's free included with Prime. Yep, I'm doing it oh, after we get off. Cool. <laughs> I haven't seen this movie in like probably ten years. Anyway. Edmund's a crazy movie, but it does, it has that same kind of thing. And I think it's the, it's the, um, it's the kind of, it's the eyes wide shut thing. It's the, the city at night, it's the cracks, it's the steam, it's the lights, you know, flickering facades of the corner stores. It's just something that looks great. And heist is almost entirely, um, in the daytime. And, um, I think that the opening heist in heist is pretty great. I will say that like, yeah, Mamet, as I was watching all of his movies today, or today, over the last couple days, I was thinking to myself, like, why does it, why, what is he adding to this that he doesn't want to give these scripts to another person? <laughs> um, and I, I, like, I, it, it's, it, that feels like it's a very harsh thing to say, but I'm, I'm serious. Like, sometimes I wonder, but then I think about the untouchables or the edge and Ronan though <laughs> like oh my god <laughs> and He's I staging just in that movie yeah but I just think to myself like the, the dialogue doesn't pop in in the movies that he doesn't write and direct as much as it does in the movies that he does direct so I wonder if there's a part of that where he's just like this is the one where I need to have all of my all of my powers at, at the fore to get the words out to make sure that they're going to say things the way that they need to be said. Garden variety narcissism. <laughs> it's very possible. Yes. Um, I, this would be another great moment to be able to uh, to kind of align it with um, Aaron Sorkin. But I have not seen whatever that one movie that Aaron Sorkin directed was. <laughs> uh, Molly's getting no, that wasn't him. No, um, wait, wasn't it? Wait. I don't know. I don't. I don't really want to talk. Let's let's talk about Miss Sloan. Was it? <laughs> oh yeah. No, of it's Molly's game. Not. It was Molly's game. Miss Sloan was the other. Um, you know the character's name in the in the title, starting with an M, starring 
starring that woman whose name is escaping me, Jessica Chastain. Yeah, the same one from Molly's Game. Yeah, the exactly. The good part of, my, of Molly's Game is the Bill Camp subplot where he's like uh, he's losing money and has to pay a debt, and it's like the only good part of that movie. But uh, yeah, I, I digress. The thing I do want to talk about a little bit that we haven't uh we haven't really touched on is i kind of love that you know there's there's two things one is that this is a pretty small scale con like you you fully see that right in front of you uh in that final scene we're already talking about where they're speaking Mm -hmm. about how they you know got one over on her but i also love that they are putting some real skin in the game for a number of these cons you know i love that line that's like who said this is phony money? <laughs> like, <laughs> like the sense that they're putting their money in, they're putting themselves on the line. And whether it's an illusion or not, and it's, you know, it is ultimately, ultimately an illusion, obviously. But, like, that is something that does still feel notable and maybe goes back to that certain principles quality I'm, I was talking about. Yeah, there's a great bit when they're at the bar at the end, and he's the one guy's like, "I paid three hundred for the hotel room," and they and they all start bickering about the cost of the <laughs> hotel room, um, which shows you, yeah, right. This is again, you know, it's a it's a business, like uh, you know, he says at the end when he's being shot, <laughs> nothing personal. Yeah, <laughs> uh-huh. I also love that he's pissed off that she stole his knife. Yeah. He's like, I put a bunch of stuff around and the, the is, at that point, is he calling her a broad or a bitch? No. I don't know. <laughs> I, I guess Spider-Man, meaning it's Spider-Man moment there. <laughs> yeah, he's like, you know, I left, you know, money, I left jewelry, I left all this stuff. The bitch takes my knife. <laughs> my lucky knife. And then everyone's like, oh, she's just a full-on thief. <laughs> yeah, they, they say the <laughs> they called her a bitch quite often, and I was, I was just like Jesus. They man. were they you were, just you just ripped her off for eighty grand, and you're just like this bitch, and it's just like Jesus, man. <laughs> yeah, like okay, so I have the quote here from IMDb after like you know the whole talking about the knife. The bitch is a booster. The bitch is a born thief, man. So you had her made from the jump. I'm telling you, a ton of fucking bricks. Show me some real con men. And then they talk about, you know, the dinosaur con men, some old style tough. And then, and then, uh, and then he's, and then the the one guy says, took her money and screwed her too. And Mike says a small price to pay. Like they, 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 again, this is just another thing that goes to show, like they come off so charming. And then the second that the veil is pulled back, they're toxic as shit. And this is actually Mm. something that's helping me to come to terms with something I felt in Oleana. Because Oleana, at first, you're kind of on the side of the guy. Because no matter what he did, it, it doesn't... It's a sexual assault allegation? Is that what the Oleana... Yes. Yeah, so okay. this the professor and the student, and um, she's, like, failing his class and goes to talk to him. And he's distracted, and he's pontificating. And then the next day, you know, up the tenure board is, like, this woman has accused you of, like, sexual assault and, like, lewd conduct. And for for, like, 12 minutes, you're like... I don't know. That feels pretty harsh for everything that he did. Like, certainly he shouldn't have done this one thing, but to go after him like this. But the more like it's it's one of those things where it's like the the measure of a man is how he responds to his character being tested. And if the way that you respond to your character being tested is to double down on the shit that you shouldn't have done in the first place, 
and to just escalate, then you're clearly in the wrong. And so the way that these men act at the end of House of Games is is pretty similar to the way that uh, he acts in Oleana, where it's just like once the veil is lifted and once, you know, his he, he feels justified to do something. Uh, he's he's explosive, and <laughs> it's he, all all pretensions of being a nice person are gone. And I yeah, think that full Ma- William H Macy. <laughs> yeah, he's going full Macy. And it um it reminds me a lot of uh in the company of men, another uh playwright. Oh yeah, what is his a, name? Neil. Um, Boone. Yes, yes, yes. Um, did he direct that as well? Yeah, I think he did. Yes. Okay, great. Yeah, that's another movie that I love that I at the end of watching it, I was like, I'm so glad I didn't watch this with anyone else. Um, Aaron Eckhart is is friggin phenomenal in that. Uh, the, that movie comes 10 years after this one. And it's it's another movie that I just like, you know, you 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 begin and, you know, you think that one of these men is truly terrible and the other is just like a schmuck getting pulled in. And then the more that the layers get peeled away and the more that the, the, the temperature gets raised, the more you realize like, Oh no, he's exactly the same type of piece of shit, but he doesn't have the confidence and the looks to be the kind of piece of shit that like feels like he can get away with this. Yeah. But I, I think that's what also makes the end of house of games. Like it just makes it, it makes it extreme in a way that's, you know, it almost becomes a moral dilemma because the first two times you're like, hell yeah, you shoot him. <laughs> and then <laughs> when she does like seven or eight more, or maybe it's just five, whatever. It's overkill. Let's put it's it more than he way. needs. More than he needs. <laughs> it is It is funny though, because like, the, I and I feel like Mamet has a couple of ways that he ends things. And one of them is is escalation to the point of you cannot be on this person's side anymore. So like, in in this in Oleana, you know, you have this kind of sensation of like, I understand the impulses, but you cannot let them break into that way. And if memory serves, Edmund kind of has the same thing. Oh yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, it's it's that it's that sensation of like rage turning into action, and that's at the point where you've suddenly like forfeited your moral high ground so even in this movie you're like yeah you know joe's a piece or not joe mike is a piece of shit and he keeps and he keeps just egging her on and it's and so you're like yeah shoot him but then you you think about what he says and he's like i never killed anyone i just took people's money and you're here with a gun and you're like ah crap i kind of hate that he has a point like (laughs) but the things that he's saying are so monstrous that you can't even really give him credit for that and you don't feel that about what she did but at the same time you're like this woman went from from zero to high order violence like that you know it's it's just still yeah. a little it's still a little concerning it's it's kind of surprising i think i think that turn doesn't necessarily earn itself but it's is i think I the fact that he calls her a whore when mm-hmm. earlier she had spoken to the prison inmate and said that her own father used to call her that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's a lot there. And I think that one of the things that's most interesting about this movie is the things that it kind of leaves up in the air, you know, letting, mm-hmm. letting the, the, the concepts kind of float on their own. The other way that David Mamet likes to end things is, I mean, he, there's just like a couple of things. He loves airports. He loves camera crews 
surreptitiously being around to capture people doing horrible things. <laughs> I think when we reviewed Coco, I said they must have brought David Mamet in for a rewrite on the ending because the ending of Coco, again, involves a camera crew <laughs> being used to out the shitty behavior of someone, which is something that Mamet does in um, Spartan and Red Belt. Yeah, and then this movie ends in an airport heist. Has a like the climactic heist takes place at an airport. It's just all over the place. I, I think one other thing I'd, I'd like to mention before we just get away from uh, from Krauss's uh, motivations is you know it's it's worth pointing out too that the book she wrote was on compulsive behavior. <laughs> she wrote a book about compulsive behavior, and she wanted to write a book about the dark world of cons. So the possibility that she would have this innate desire to, you know, uh, take that adventure to the next level isn't that much of a jump, e- even beyond trying to find specific motivation within the film. <laughs> well, I mean, I uh, <laughs> everyone protect your eyes, but I'm going to say another eye rolly thing. I mean, in that way, the greatest con is the con that she's pulling on herself. No. <laughs> Get off the podcast. Uh, <laughs> this is my Eric, podcast, damn it. I haven't listened to it in a, in a long time. Uh, the commentary track on the Criterion disc I listened to, I remember back in the day. And uh, aside from, you know, uh, the sort of weirdness of, of Mammoth's bluster, um, but he talks... <laughs> He, God, it's so weird, guys. Give it a listen. He starts by talking about how George Bush is a bad liar, which means he feels bad about lying and therefore isn't a bad person. Uh, no. It's a really weird observation to start the House of Games commentary with. That is a um, very weird. Wait, so is he talking about Bush Sr.? N- no, he's talking about Bush W. during oh, okay. Iraq War. Because the commentary, I think, is from like 2007. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, and he's just sense. like, say what you want to say what you want about Bush. He's a bad liar. That's a tell. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> buddy. Okay. Um, I mean, there is something to be said for the fact that like the, the and this is one of the reasons why I feel like I could be a con man, um, because I don't like to lie to people in a way that hurts them. When and okay. I, I almost stick to the tell. Right. And so, but that's the thing is that if, if you feel guilty when you're telling the lie, you're going to tell the lie. Now, if you feel fine with telling the lie, you're going to tell the truth. Does that make sense? Or did I just sound like a mammoth character? <laughs> Say that again. The best way. Yeah. When, if you feel bad when you tell a lie, you're going to tell the lie. Right. But if you feel fine about it, you're going to tell the truth. Like the, the lie will be, will sound right. and feel and will be delivered as truth coming out of your lips. Whereas okay. if you feel bad about it, something in you is going to be the tell that you are lying and you will sound as though you Give are lying. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yes. okay. Sorry about the tangent, but I, I remembered why I was talking about that now. I remember because I remember uh, Mamet saying that uh, he he thought of Patton uh, in which right when Patton's got Rommel's book and he's like, you son of a bitch, I've read your book. Um, and that's. <laughs> I think at the heart of right why the the con even begin and why she's the mark and why she's targeted right look at this bestseller driven obsessive compulsive behavior I actually on rewatch was thinking and maybe you guys can rewatch the opening 
I almost think that the woman that asks for the autograph at the beginning is part of the con. Even though she doesn't come back at all, it's like this gorgeous woman in a red dress being like, your book changed my life. Sort of just like pumping up her ego. It just <laughs> seems so auspicious. Uh, but I, again, I legitimately though, with- agree with you. It, like she never comes back. There's nothing to there's like no fan theory style like and then you see her in the background in scene seven. But it but does it feel ends. that way. It is, and then right, it does bookend with the yeah. the signature at the end because Mamet loves that perfect structure, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, the, the, oh, I have what, one more thing I wanted to say about the ending, really quick. Oh yeah, um, absolutely. That, uh, especially because again, right, it's sort of you know. Once the jig is up, it sort of verves into, you know, very aggressive and weird territory. And I think one notable thing, I think, you know, situating this film historically is that it, you know, although it was not widely seen by a lot of people at the time, it's a film that very much is part of that neo-noir cycle of the 80s where, you know, noir really, you know, comes back into style or neo-noir codifies itself, right? With films like What Simple and House of Games and yeah. and all that. There's got to be you a know, Michael Mann movie that fits into that. Like oh, Thief. Thief, yeah, yeah. Thief, yeah, exactly. Right. There's a whole resurgence and sort of like a new formulation of what noir is sort of starting in the, even with Body Heat. He, I think oh, Mammon yeah. even wrote Mammoth wrote the Postman Always Rings Twice remake for yes. Bob Rafelstein. Um, so there's a lot of connections there. And I think House of Games really, you know, is firmly rooted in that sort of, you know, if you want to call it a genre tradition uh, of noir. I know Mamet was certainly thinking, I've got a low budget. Mm-hmm. I like B- I like B movies. I like film noir. And like they really do go all the way. Right. I mean, it actually ends like a real film noir where a woman blows a man away and, and, you know, goes on vacation, which is pretty classic. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I love that she comes back wearing an Aloha shirt. (laughs) (laughs) Is it, uh, are you saying that that's, that's a style of shirt or are you saying that that's just what it looks like? I don't like, what do you call those floral Hawaiian shirts? I just call them floral prints. Okay, uh, yeah. Well, them, she yeah. comes back wearing one of those. Uh, or, or I mean, I guess you could call it a Hawaiian shirt. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, Hawaiian yeah. shirt oh. works. I don't know why yeah, I said yeah. Aloha shirt. Yeah, I was just like, I didn't realize that was a very specific thing. Okay, yeah. Sorry. I I just want to point out in terms of years, Eric. In terms of the point you just made, so Body Heat was eighty one, Blood Simple was eighty four, and uh, House of Games is eighty seven. So yeah, he was definitely following that that trend uh, by that point. So absolutely. I mean, it's really weird. Like one of the reasons I I rewatched this film over the winter and I and I fell back in love with it completely. It had been quite a few years, and it was because I was doing my heist film course and I started thinking about the film as a heist film uh, and is it you know what is, does it qualify and all that and I think it, it comes at a really interesting moment sort of in the historical trajectory of heist films which of course sort of like stem out of noir and the crime film of the 40s and 50s and then they sort of went you know heist films became very cosmopolitan and, and, and uh, sort of global and, and comedies in the 60s and 70s and the, the genre or subgenre really like fell off pretty hard in the 70s and early 80s and so thinking about Mamet as 
you know, a heist film director, or at least, you know, the Confidence Man film, which is based, you know, same thing, essentially, right? Um, and thinking, right, like, this is, this is like the one of the only films I can think of, if not the only heist film where it's from the perspective of the mark. Like that's really unique. That's not something you see, right? A hallmark of heist films is sympathy for criminals. Obviously the process of a robbery is like essentially what it's all about. And that's, you know, unbeknownst to us, that's essentially what we're watching the whole film. And so I think it's, you know, a very unique take uh, within the family tree of the heist film. And one thing I wanted to mention that I've been thinking about is I learned that this film was originally written by Mamet for Peter Yates. And Peter oh. Yates uh, directed a trio of heist films in the 60s and 70s, Robbery, The Hot Rock, and of course, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Yeah. And The Friends of Eddie Coyle one thing I realized doing my heist course is, again, like how unique that film is within the tradition of heists. It's about the guy who supplies guns to heisters. <laughs> like, that's such a bizarre perspective. And then here, you know, it's sort of a continuation of like looking at this process from a different point of view. Right. It would be like the sting if it was from the point of view of uh, what's his name. So I'm curious. I don't, I don't, I unfortunately do not, I don't know what, what's his, who's no, who, what's his Robert, name? Is it Robert Shaw? Did I make that up? I can't it doesn't remember. matter. The one, the one I thought of in response to your, your question, Eric, was, uh, the Ridley Scott 2000s, I, uh, fuck, I'll, uh, Matchstick Man? For this, yes. Because he's totally the mark at the end. Right. That's right, right. the only one I can think of, though? There has to be more, but yeah, I, I think that's a great point. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely noir, like old noirs where yes. people are like totally being duped, but you know, with such, I don't know, it's just so elegant, right? Because the audience is sort of forced to take on that identification uh, in being duped, or at least like that acceptance of being duped as you're watching the movie. Did you have yeah, to and, adjust uh, the definition of heist film at all to make Mamet? Did you have to like mess with the <laughs> definition a little bit to make Mamet fit? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, he doesn't, you know, there are ways in which he fits like a glove in ways in which he is so far outside of the tradition. But really, I just, you know, asked my students to figure it out. I said, uh, watch I mean, these films, see if he, you can situate them within the tradition, you know. I mean, he has a movie that's literally called Heist, so you've at least got that one. Yeah, I think The Spanish Prisoner and Heist are pretty, you know, you can, and House of Games are like straight up, you know, heist films. See, however I, I would buck back against that because, like, I, I view a con and a heist differently i like i think that sure. for something to be a heist there's got to be some level of smash and grab break into the vault like so a MacGuffin specifically no it, yeah no because even in a con movie the the money is the MacGuffin. you know like sure but i think that is, a heist now, hold on hold on is, <laughs> is that a MacGuffin? i feel like i feel like that's a, a butchering of of the term MacGuffin because a MacGuffin is it supposed is, to be the thing that like isn't really yeah. 
Yeah, but like that's, money. That's okay, point. I think I know what you mean, right? So here, <laughs> let me ex- let me explain some of the things that I learned. <laughs> right, there's there's two things going on in a heist film, right? The characters want the money, but they also there's something else, right? It's freedom, it's uh, sure, a second sure. chance, it's right the personal. Um, so you have that sort of two prong thing. There's the monetary value, and then there's the personal gain. And I would, you know. I would say that's what's, you know, sort of twisted about House of Games is that she gets involved not for monetary value at all. She's not involved in a scheme of theirs to rob anything mm-hmm. per se, um, at least not she's initially. not entering, you know, in that sort of contract. So, yeah, I mean, well, it's definitely a stretch. I think that I, so I, I, just I, just I, on I, my own personal, I'll say like, you know, maybe saying like smash and grab is the wrong thing. But I think that a con is done with the with, like with the full hope that the person won't realize what has happened until you are gone. Like in a con, a person will go home, sleep for three days, and not realize how thoroughly they've been taken. In a heist, I feel like almost instantly everyone like knows what's going to happen. Like it, it's gone. It's it's happened through some level of force and not persuasion. Does that make yeah. sense? I mean, sure, but I think there's a right. There's a lot of heists that are creative and nonviolent, right? So I think right. I think ultimately, maybe the difference would be a heist film is is typically directed. Their action is directed at an institution like a bank or so on, a casino, right? Yeah. Uh, whereas a con, as Ricky J would say, a big con is a drama played for an audience of one person. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I think, probably like really at the heart of the difference between um, between the two. But I think as films, they have so much in common because it's about the process. And, right. it's and there's always the team uh, and like, you know, yeah. what's going to go wrong. I think that like <laughs> to that end, Inside Man is a heist movie that eventually proves itself to be a con movie. <laughs> Like Absolutely. That, yeah. Like, you know, that's that's kind of what I'm talking about. Like, I think that Triple uh, Nine, total heist movie. I think that heist is a heist movie that has some cons in it to help the heist. Like, there's yeah. definitely overlap, but I don't yeah. view House of Games as a heist movie. This is like 100% con to me with a little bit of like revenge murder thrown in at the end. <laughs> Sure. And I think I mean, I think that speaks to, in a sense, you know, the the heist film really fizzled out and the con man film, especially in the form of Mammoth, in the form of these sort of neo-noirs really kind of took its place for a time until, of course, the heist made its uh, magnificent comeback in the 90s. But I think that's one interesting thing, you know. And I would say an argument against House of Games as a heist film is that it does not have a political agenda at all. And that was sort of core in the creation of the heist film, right? These were films created by like leftist Hollywood filmmakers in the HUAC uh, sort of era, right? In the Cold War McCarthyism era. Uh, and they were very political minded. And House of Games is is absolutely not that, right? It's about storytelling. It's about human psychology and behavior and uh, people saying funny stuff like all David Mamet movies. <laughs> okay. So look, I, Brian mentioned something that I want to kind of take a dig at real quick. So, <laughs> or no, actually I think it was our guest. Um, I can't remember. Oh. One, one of y'all said this, that she keeps entering into these deals, these, these cons 
with money not as kind of a uh, as a lead in. Now, I would challenge that because she uh, ultimately each one of those cons is money related. Now, the thing is, is that she never enters into any of these cons with full knowledge of what the fuck is even going on. Right. Right. Well, that's that's what I said. Like, it, it, there is a point at which you realize that she is not having an honest conversation with anyone. Sure. Like, and and I I think that um, yeah, I think that she knows that in the end that the the object is money. I don't think that she cares so much about the money. No, she she's not going into it for the money. But I I felt like that was a judgment on her. I felt like one of y'all was making a judgment on her, saying that like she's she's innocent almost in that like she doesn't she's not going into this with with money as like the the reason, even though that's the entire point of the con to begin with. Right? I think Does that, that make sense? I think that the Western Union con. <clears throat> because they specifically pull out of it and don't take his money, you could make that claim. I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't recall making that claim, but I think that the second that she agrees to go and try to grift uh, J.T. Walsh, mm-hmm. like it, yeah, she's fully involved. She is fully invested, and she is she is a part of that. And, she, and she's not backing out either. Oh right? no, no, she like he's like I gotta go. I got a con to do, and she's like take me with you. And he's like no, no, no. This is like a real ass con, and you're gonna blow my timing. <laughs> she's like no, I want to be a part of it. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, like she, she's, she's like a fish to water and, and, you know, we're kind of like, yeah, that's super cool. Like you're part of a con. And then later on when they're at, um, Charlie's or Carlisle's or whatever the second bar is, they're just, they're mm. like, you know, she, she took to it so fucking fast. Just like she was dying for this. Like, this is precisely what she wanted and she never let herself actually like believe it. So is this let me ask you this so so this always bothers me and i i used to watch a show um and of course i can't remember the fucking name of it uh <laughs> it's it's the nolan brother before uh J- uh jonathan nolan before he did uh westworld he did a show person of interest while. Yes, person of interest, where he basically walks around and is talking to someone in in broad daylight in public in a little earpiece and just talking about like how he's about to rip these people off or like hack their cell phone or do all like he has these conversations in like cafes and it it drives me insane because I mean, you know, you're supposed to kind of suspend your disbelief uh, in in that way, but it's also is like they're not they're not trying to cover it at all. (laughs) They are full on having conversations about them ripping off JT Walsh within the same hotel room that he's in. <laughs> and I think and, they were a little loud. <laughs> and I'm like, what is going on here? And they like keep pulling her to the side, but they don't whisper. They just full on like are having a conversation with her, like convincing her that this is okay, that this is right, that like this is mafia money and that blah, blah, blah. Like we're, we're about to rip this guy off for like 30 grand. Right. Yeah, That feels and, like a real play thing to me. You know, it's like, but, but the other thing is, is that she whisper. witnesses. Yes. She witnesses him having a full on fucking conversation with a walkie talkie inside the bathroom of the hotel that they're in. And I'm just like, 
I was I was full on like yeah, because all I, these people are like I'm totally fine having a conversation mm-hmm. with with everyone. Yeah. But you know the thing is like it it would be easy to like pull apart the reality of that, but then the the truer reality is that it's a setup. Yes. So and, like, and that's why I, <laughs> that's why I never thought for a second that it wasn't a setup because as soon as as soon as he turns around and he just happens to show her his his like badge and and gun and I was just like. Ah, uh, this guy's a fucking cop, and I was just like, "No, he's fucking not." Like, <laughs> this guy's a dumbass. Like having a conversation with with your guys, like in the bathroom of the suspects, like that doesn't make any sense to me. So, yeah, I I was just like, this this whole thing doesn't fucking make any sense. So, but, was that like a problem I mean, for you, I, or did I, that just like? Did it just help you to stay like ahead? It's it's, it's just one. <laughs> yeah, you know my issues there. <laughs> I can never stay ahead of these things. So uh, I felt again. Yes, thank you, uh, Mamet, for uh, giving me that leg up there. Um, but no, I, th- that's just one of the things that bothers me anytime in these movies. And they were doing a lot of whispering in front of the people that they were about to call. <laughs> like, I mean, he's it's, having ve- that it's very evident in the poker game, too. Yes. Where he's like, yeah. all right, I'm going to go to the bathroom. Remember to look for his pinky like ring. I'm going to, I'm getting up. I'm leaving. Look for the ring. I'm out of here. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I noticed that too. Yeah. I don't know. That, that, that stuff kind of drives me insane, even though like I'm not usually anal about a lot of those things, but I, I, I guess you know what's it weird goes is that back I think to that me you... hearing me overhearing people whisper in movies and not realize that they're not whispering. Like, <laughs> but I think they turn that, to their partner and they just talk. What's interesting like, to me is that whisper. you picking up on that unreality is you letting your kind of nitpicky nature make you immune to the con. Whereas other people would just be like, it's a movie, you know, they're going to, they're going to do this and I'm just going to assume that Ricky J can't hear them. So it's <laughs> almost like, the- what was Go that? Ahead, I was going to say, is the biggest con of all the uh, people you were listening to along the way? <laughs> well, the, the, <laughs> the, the biggest con of all in this movie is how it uses cinematic devices like that against its audience. Like Bill. <laughs> yes. No, no, because Bill is immune. Because, like, I'm sitting there and just being like, okay, obviously, like, they're not going to, like, for the sound levels and everything, they're not going to have an actual whisper conversation. And I'm going to hear them louder because the camera's closer and blah, blah, blah. But I'm going to assume that Ricky J can't hear them. When in reality, the truth is, it doesn't fucking matter if Ricky J can hear them because he's in on the con too. Well, that's actually one of my favorite parts. Is uh, they talk openly in front of Macy in the you know in the checks cashed place a couple times. But it's got uh, Montaigne's be- one of his best line deliveries where he goes, "Now that man is going to give his money to a total stranger," and he's yeah. like ten feet away from me. <laughs> Oh, it's incredible. Yeah, because it's, it's almost like they, they feel or know is that they are operating on a level of like, these people aren't paying attention to me, but for when I want them to pay attention to me and I can do whatever I want. Well, I, I was waiting for the Western Union guy to be like, sir, you you literally left my desk three seconds ago. Go sit the <laughs> fuck down. Like, I will tell you when your money arrives. <laughs> he's, he's like... <laughs> It just happens to be when when William H. Macy just like pulls in like he's like, okay, let me step right in front of this guy and then and then con him. And you're just like, dude, you were just up there like not even again, again, like put yourself in the like that Western Union guy doesn't give a shit about anything. (laughs) 
Like, yeah, I guess, and that's how I, that's how that, a con man gets I, away with it because most people in life are not that super freaking suspicious about anything. So if you're acting in a way that you'd be like, okay, clearly I'm going to tell this guy I've been here six hours. The Western Union guy at the desk knows I've only been here for like 15 minutes. Like, mm-hmm. but the Western Union guy also isn't paying attention. And even if you say that, he probably doesn't care. Like, it's it's I, it's a really great way to use the apathy of people around you as a way to like just further build your own reality. I mean, like, I not not to make this about me and my cons, but I did that a lot. <laughs> I knew that the people I, who knew what I was doing wouldn't say anything because they just didn't care, and that the uh, it didn't affect them enough for them to bother to like try to call me out. It's got dark. <laughs> You know, you just got to know where you are. You got to know your, you got to know your whole thing. The bartender is not suddenly going to call me out because I'm suddenly talking in an Irish accent when two minutes earlier I was talking in a perfectly normal, I don't know, mid-Atlantic accent or whatever the hell I've got. Yeah, because so, he was yeah. like, this will make my shift a little more interesting. 100%. Yeah. He's living his own movie. And suddenly there's a guy who's telling a bunch of people that he's from Galway who just two minutes earlier showed him a driver's license from Maryland and he doesn't care. He's totally fine with it. Um, I feel like I was going to say something else. Now I can't remember. We lost the plot. Yeah. Well, okay. So I just, just talking about mammoth dialogue and the way that like characters will, will like progress an entire scene without the other character saying anything. When he's talking to William H. Macy and says, like, I was in the Marines, like, you know, in, in 68 and whatever. And then William H. Basie just looks at him and he just says, yeah, I was there. <laughs> like, that's such a mammoth. Such a good bit. Yeah. He's just like, yep, uh, I put that in there on purpose. I know what you're thinking. And yes, I was there. And I will not say it because I know that is not what we do. <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah. Um, so wait, Mike, Michael, what other mammoth films have you, you watched now? You watched Spartan, I know, because you thanked me for that. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, I really liked Spartan. And that actually, to speak of, you know, whether we can talk about a certain a- a- effect uh, to uh, performance in the same way as Lindsay Krauss, uh, Kristen, uh, Kirsten? Kristen? Kristen Stewart. <laughs> Uh, or, no, no, yeah, Kristen Bell, Bell, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kristen Bell in that has like a very heightened, exaggerated performance style that I, that I think works. Um, yeah, I've seen Ronin, which which is very much uh, a mammoth film through and through. Um, I, I feel like the big moment in that. Well, my favorite line was when. Um, when Gene Reno just goes to talk to this guy in French and offers him a cigarette and he comes back and he has like a key and all this information. <laughs> and Robert De Niro's like, how do you, how do you know him? And he's like, Oh, we, we went to high school together. <laughs> like a callback to an earlier or earlier thing. Which is I just, just need to stop a, you. Is It's Jean Reno, right? It's not Gene Reno. <laughs> yeah, it's Jean. He's not a lounge singer from Nevada. Right. It's 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 maybe genre now. That's that's a, that's a that's a possibility. He's like um, Spanish, Algerian, French. I think. Um, yeah, I'm so glad I, I host a, a podcast where I have to say uh, art house directors all the time. Um, <laughs> uh, what I was going to say though is like, and then there's a there's a totally bizarre but badass scene where he calls sean bean out on 
being bullshit Robert De Niro does. And it's mm-hmm. just this wonderfully like obtuse mammoth exchange. Uh, yeah. And then Red Belt, Glenn Gary, and Hannibal, which I did not know he did Hannibal yeah. uh, until today. And I really wish Hannibal, for being as insane a movie as it is, the fucking Ray Liotta scene. That movie's so boring. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what about like, like un- did you say Untouchables? N- oh, I have seen Untouchables. Yeah, he yeah, did he alone yeah. write that? Um, let me take a look at the credits. It says uh, uh, Well, hold on, hold on. Michael, did you find out how Inio died? Uh, yes. <laughs> L- let's go ahead. Speaking of Natural a callback, causes. what was it? Natural causes. No, okay, natural, natural causes. causes. Again, he he okay. died of being right. in his nineties. Um, <laughs> no, so okay, it was it was written by David Mamet. It, it's what's weird. I don't understand this credit. Suggested by a book by <laughs> Oscar Fraley and Elliot Ness. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's weird. But uh, Mamet wrote that. I uh, the Edge is another one that I really like that Mamet wrote. That's um, not the Val Kilmer ice skating one, right? No. What? No. The edge is. I don't know what I'm thinking of. The edge is Anthony Were Hopkins. <laughs> no. Jesus. <laughs> Wait. Men fighting a bear. Yeah, that's that's Alec Baldwin and Anthony oh, Hopkins Baldwin. fight a bear. Where did I get at first sight from the edge? All right, never mind. <laughs> at, I was about to say, I know what you're talking about because I have seen that movie. Oh, me too. Me too. <laughs> I Okay, so this is dumb and pointless and has nothing to do with what we're talking about. But when I was a kid, Val Kilmer was like my favorite actor. And I don't know how other than I really liked Top Gun. And so I made my parents rent me The Saint. I made them rent me At First Sight. <laughs> and I don't know why they did it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway that's just something i had oh, to get boy. off my chest um what what are, we, what are we talking about what's happening now i i think we should probably do last thoughts or something yeah. considering so, started talking about val kilmer so what's your what's your favorite mammoth that you've you've seen like what or, oh. or either written or directed though i would hopefully choose something that he directed as well i think it might be red belt i i think um that is another film that is kind of uh, has some really thorny things again to say about where principles will lead you. I like the way that it's, um, it's, it's extremely underhanded with its actual cons. And I like the way that it seems to be playing for so long with this idea of disarming your opponent and, you know, this, uh, this calmness will treat you well. And in a way, his certain like Cohen, uh, not Cohen brothers, but like the Cohens he says to himself, like in a way they do help him. But there is something fundamentally uh, pathetic in that film that I, that I find really um, like oddly seductive. And I and I also just think. Uh, I, I think I would push back a little bit what Eric was saying about House of Games being uh, his most visually interesting film, because I think Elswit does some wonderful stuff with negative space in, in that film, uh, in particular when uh, it's in the ring. Um, I, I love the way that he shoots it in a way that's low enough that you can't see the crowd at all, but mm-hmm. it's um, 
it's totally lucid in terms of following the the boxers. But yeah, so that might be that might be my favorite one. I'm just trying to think of what uh, the the one that always sticks out to me is him saying, "Who imposes the terms of the battle imposes the terms of the peace." Yeah, and there's like that drum in the background. Yes, I, I also love the line where he says, uh, "Embrace or deflect it? Why oppose it?" Which is such a such a I- ironic line given how the how the film ultimately ends. But, I mean, that's uh, a lot of what Mamet loves to do is is to have these people oh, yeah. say these things and then like not actually mean them or understand them until the time comes. Well, I'd, I'd say a parallel is Red Belt. I, I haven't seen enough of Mamet to really. Get, say this with enough credence, but it reminds me of something like Femme Fatale in uh, De Palma's uh, filmography in that, you know, it, it it very much makes those on-the-nose metaphors into its own, uh, you know, like nesting doll in, in a way. And I, I think, as you're saying, like Red Belt and particularly Chiwetel, Ijefor's, uh character is like such a direct metaphor for... <laughs> the entirety of Mamet's sensibility. Um, so yeah, I just, that was yeah. probably my favorite. And Mamet loves a, path- a quote unquote pathetic character. Like he, oh, he loves Chiwetel Ejiofor in that movie. He loves oh, Campbell speaking Scott. Speaking of which, have you know, guys seen the verdict? No. Oh my God. You got to see the verdict. That's an early Mamet screenplay that was uh, turned into a Sydney Lumet movie starring Paul Newman as an alcoholic ambulance chaser. Who, oh, I... uh, he catches the case of a lifetime and man, it's, it's truly an incredible movie. Is that, so is that, Grisham? is that a Grisham novel that's based on the verdict? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think so. But then again, it's a, a 1980 novel of the same name by Barry Reed. Oh, well, sure. Yeah. So I, I'm curious, is that <clears throat> because it's a screenplay by David Mamet? Um, does it have the kind of Mamet dialogue that we've been talking about, even though it's directed by Lumet and comes really early in his screenwriting career? I, do, I don't remember it having that aggressive dialogue it's been a few years since i've seen it but i think yeah i mean i think he tends to get uh i think he knows how to write again i think there is like right a decided difference between the stuff that he directs and the stuff that he writes for someone else i mean i don't know if you've seen danny devito's hoffa either but that i don't believe really has much mammoth speak at all um just kind of plays as a historical film but definitely the verdict I recommend one of the great uh, Paul Newman performances. Yeah, I do. I do. It's one of those movies that's been on my list for forever. Um, I feel like there's this gray area of movies that either like that in my brain is like, that's probably like the seventies or the eighties. Right. And um, I think the verdict falls in there. And like, I just, they become like this kind of mush in my brain that I can't ever extract them when I'm trying to think of what I want to watch. Um, I will say that like the untouchables I feel has like the beginnings of his more like quirky quotable stuff. Like when, when Ness says like, how do you know that? I just told you that. And Malone says who would claim to be that who is not like, that's a mammoth line. That's the thing that a mammoth line says. Um, I think I had a little bit of trouble with Mamet uh, in Untouchables. I, well, I I generally think uh, Untouchables is 
weaker uh, De Palma. That it's weird that we brought it back to De Palma, but uh, yeah, um, I generally think that's weaker. But I think his dialogue was something uh, to speak of, like the the circuitous. Uh, Christ, why can't I pronounce anything today? Um, in terms of that, like uh, elliptical dialogue, is something that I did find a little bit difficult. And, you know, pretty straight ahead gangster film. Uh, so that is one one time I can remember finding it a little bit of a barrier. Um, so, Eric, you said that this might be Mamet's best looking film. I'm curious, what do you think is his best all around film? Oh, man, that's a tough question. I've got to go with State and Maine, maybe, I think is I mean, I think the thing about Mamet, you know, for me is that I he he's definitely one of those guys who like loves to quote Aristotle and shit and say like <laughs> uh he has all these you know these like aphorisms about screenwriting and stuff and he really is just like a a, a good version of like the Robert McKee like <laughs> sort of guy who's like structure is a structure is everything I I know everything about humans or whatever because uh, he very much you know is kind of like that but I think he's so aggressively weird and constantly sort of like his movies are constantly folding in on themselves and challenging themselves. And I think he really goes beyond that while also, I mean, it's true. Like House of Games is great because it's so lean. There really isn't um, any extra stuff. It's just sort of this ruthless thing. Um, And I don't know, State in Maine for me is just, you know, it's just a laugh a minute and you can't really beat that. I mean, I think his dialogue is very, very funny. And to have it played like straight up for laughs like that, I know for a fact that Mamet styled at one point styled himself a sort of like Frank Capra slash Preston Sturgisian sort of per- <laughs> like person. Like he's, he's talked about it a lot, right? He has the, he has Preston Sturgis memorized just as the Coen brothers do. Right. So yeah. um, I feel like state in Maine is sort of the fullest expression of that sort of slapstick comic sensibility. And I love it. Yeah, I might have to go state and Maine just because of, I think as a person who loves movies, like it's hard to get over how wonderfully that movie skewers the entire apparatus of Hollywood. Um, is it comparable to like the player? Is, is that kind of what state and Maine is in the vein of? Uh, Eric, what would you say? I would say yes and no. I think it's more explicitly a comedy. It doesn't have the sort of like, you know cd mystery vibes of the player um but everyone is terrible i mean it's it's (laughs) it's an ensemble where everyone is terrible and it's got you know william h macy and alec baldwin and all these just really really terrific actors doing the hollywood thing which they all know so well yeah um and it's got some of the great mammoth quotes like when alec baldwin says uh Baseball, why? That's America's sport <laughs> and stuff like that. I watched it. I watched that movie the other day, and I just cackled to myself like a goon. He's Chucky. You got any hobbies? Baseball, Mister Barrister. Baseball. Why? That's the American pastime. <laughs> it's just like God. <laughs> when uh, Rebecca Pigeon's like, you know, what you got there. You got a fish hook in your finger. Oh man, uh, yeah. That I just and just like like William H Macy in that movie. I think I watched it. I've watched that movie like five times. And then it, this is, I think is the first time when I realized he's the director because right. 
everything he's talking about, like so little of it is about art. So little of it's about anything that you would assume that a director would go for. I just assumed that he was like the line producer. And then this time I was like, oh shit, no, he is the director of this movie. <laughs> um, it's not the weird European guy who's just the cinematographer. Um, I love the shirt. Does it have to be an old mill? And he like freaks out at the PA who's wearing it. So yeah, I might, I might say state and Maine, And then some days I'd say red belt because honestly, like I love me some Chiwetel Ejiofor and, uh, just the jujitsu in that is awesome. I love, and Mamet is like a black belt, isn't he? Uh, I looked this up. Yeah. Yeah. So I, it really does feel like he was like, got into judo, got really, really into it and good at it. And he's just like, I got to make a movie about this. And he did. And then he's like, what else can I throw in? Magicians, con men. Tim Allen's like good too. Like if, if he had a bigger part, I could see him having like a, a punch drunk love. Like, huh, maybe I'll put some <laughs> him in some weird dramas. I mean, I, I know I've heard he's a shithead in every other respect, but he's pretty good in that movie. Who? Yeah, no. no, Tim no, Allen. No, Tim Allen. Oh, Tim yeah, the yeah. Tim Allen. Taylor's in that movie. <laughs> Yeah, okay. He yeah. plays like an aging action movie star. Um, yeah. it's, I, I like it. He's good in it. Yeah. I've um, never even heard of this. It's good. You should check it out. I will. Good. Um, yeah, so I think that's it. I think we're good. Oh, wait, no, Bill. Uh, yeah, what? what's your favorite mammoth? Or how many of, like... Not that many, but, but like, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what to... I mean, I've seen quite a few that he didn't necessarily direct, so mm-hmm. I'm not sure what what I'm supposed to do because I've seen The Untouchables, I've seen Glengarry Glen Ross, I've seen Wag the Dog, I've seen uh, Ronin, I've seen Hannibal. Unfortunately, I've seen Spartan. <laughs> uh, we don't have to relitigate that. Yeah, that'll um, be our next classic episode. <laughs> excellent uh that's just what i want um so yeah i I mean i don't know what to make of my experience with him as a director necessarily like i mean obviously he's better known for being a screenwriter more than anything but i mean i don't know the untouchables is great i right like isn't that supposed to be really good like i remember really liking it i remember it having like really good like word of or not word of mouth but like you know imdb ratings and all this other bullshit like yeah (laughs) like there's there's kind of a legacy that follows that film around isn't there no (laughs) no No, there totally is oh okay I'm just an ass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, the Glengarry Glen Ross, I really love the way that that film feels exactly like a play. Um, you know, I mean, obviously he made that in 1983 and then, and then they remade it for the screen. So um, I, I really enjoyed those performances and, you know, I'll, I'll always remember, you know, coffee is for closers and (laughs) just some of, some of those lines are just absolutely fantastic. So, um, I don't really remember a lot of the language in a lot of these other movies, except for Glengarry Glen Ross though. Um, like I don't think Ronan really is full of that. I mean, Hannibal certainly, I I don't know what the fuck's going on in that. (laughs) Um, you know, so like, and wag the dog. I guess maybe maybe there's a little bit of that language in there. 
um, if I remember correctly. But yeah, I, I mean, Glenn, Gary Glenn Ross is definitely the biggest standout of the stuff that I've seen. But this is this is definitely different and interesting, and uh, I wasn't expecting to like it as much as I did. Uh, one point of connection there too, which I always thought was interesting, is that uh, although Mamet didn't direct Glenn Gary, directed by James Foley, uh, Juan Anchia, who shot House of Games and Things Change, also shot Glenn Gary. So there yeah. is some sort of there's like continuation hmm. with right here's this guy who's shot films for Mamet a couple times, and then he's shooting another Mamet film with someone else. So I think there's something to. I mean, Glenn Gary is. Full, a full-blown mammoth film, even though he didn't direct it, right? It's got all the dialogue. It's got the whole thing, right? You, you think you think Mammoth probably like whispered in his ear and was like, "Hey, hey <laughs> do me a favor, don't don't shoot it like that. Don't. That's that's a terrible idea." <laughs> yeah, use my guy. I wonder. <laughs> I wonder. I wonder how that came up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the long con. Right? <laughs> protect the legacy <laughs> <laughs> oh man okay. all right well that yeah. is it for today we have uh, talked about house of games and mammoth enough to keep me sated until i eventually force us to do another one of these should do yep. oleana and and just have it be the three of us <laughs> <laughs> make it just like beg for cancellation pretty much (laughs) you said edmund too so we'll we'll, we'll do a double feature oh yeah yeah that'll be perfect (laughs) suicide by social media um if you have any thoughts on mammoth that you'd like to throw our way go to podcast at filmstage.com and shoot us an email or of course you can find us on twitter and facebook by searching filmstage show um, don't forget to go to patreon.com slash filmstage show and give us your money. And of course, don't forget to go to mubi.com slash filmstage uh, for your free 30 day subscription to movie where you can see Werner Herzog's new film, Family Romance Inc. Is that, did I, did I do that right? Is that the name of the movie? LLC. LLC. That's it. But I got the romance, right? Yes. Family Romance. Yes. <laughs> LLC. There's also Limited Liability Company. Yes. There's also the entirety of Out One on there from Jacques Rivette. If you missed that one, it was on Netflix for some fucking reason. (laughs) Yeah, movies movies got some great stuff. Uh, What was it? Transit just dropped as well. Uh, The director's cut of The Invincibles. Um, I want to give a big shout out to Hyenas, which I just watched the other day. The uh, Gibral Jap Mambete movie. It is amazing. The restoration is gorgeous. Uh, The score is, I'm obsessed with it. Highly recommended. (laughs) Nice. Yeah, I talked about that last week. It's something that I want to watch. My my watch list on movie is growing larger by the day. I I need to to start watching these. That damn library. It's... (laughs) too much <laughs> i know i um sex and lucia is on there i uh ida by pavel pavlikowski is on there i mean like yeah there's too much there's too much good stuff apparently there's a popeye the sailor man short on there too yes from uh not fleischer um no it's dave fleischer yeah yeah from fleischer to yeah who did a couple of my favorite cartoons ever so yeah damn um anyway yeah so check, check all the check, wait hold on while I'm looking at it, I'm going to add it to my watch list because I'm a glutton. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, check all that out. I hope you enjoy it. And um, don't forget to go to MUBI.com slash filmstage for your free 30-day trial. Uh, Michael Snydell, what are we talking about next week? 
We are talking about, uh, uh, sorry, Palm Springs. I think that's what it's called. The movie with Andy Samberg and Kristen Melody. And uh, we're talking with Andy Crump about that one. Hey, hey I know Andy. Crump. I know Crump. I, I think Crump. Palm Springs is kind of a uh, time loop comedy. I've, yeah, I remember hearing about that coming out of Sundance, I believe. Yeah, it, it looks fun. I, I, w- I watched the trailer uh, a few days ago. Um, and it's, and a, then it's a new movie. So we're talking out. about Relic at some point, too, aren't we? Is that next, next week? Jesus. With, I, I can say we Not, are talking with old film stage show uh, chair Amanda Waltz. Yay, oh, okay. Amanda's not coming back. Relic, not the relic. Yeah, no, yeah. not no, the no. relic. I was about to say it's okay, Bill. It's not the the bad one, the one from like the nineties. <laughs> hey, it's in Chicago. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does take place in a museum, the Field Museum. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's a. Uh, oh, you're you, yeah, you're in Chicago. Have you ever seen the Ghost yeah. in the Darkness? At the Field oh, Museum. Yeah. Or isn't that the relic or the that's the relic takes place in the field museum but the ghost in the darkness the actual lions are stuffed in the field museum right oh yeah totally the douglas isn't that a val kilmer film okay guys there was a movie based on a real event the movie starred val kilmer val kilmer now I was asking if you, as humans living in the real world, ever went to the Field Museum to look at the stuffed carcasses of the real world lions that were oh, yeah. featured in the major motion picture, The Ghost of the Darkness. Have you seen The Ghost and the Darkness in that I've museum? Seen, I've seen them. Right. They don't have manes, right? No. God, Probably. <laughs> I would... um. I would go to Chicago just to see those two lions. Wow. <laughs> I won't lie to That's you. That's intense. That's intense. Like if I went there and someone was like, you can do only one thing while you are here. I would be like, you know, this movie's been, or this, this city's been in a lot of movies. I know there's a lot of good food, but show me them goddamn lions. <laughs> you wouldn't even meet me. You, you would just go to field museum. You can meet me there. We can look at the lions together. <laughs> Uh, uh, sure Brian exactly will not come to Snydell. Snydell must come to Brian. Oh, great. Cool. <laughs> and now that I have uh, bastardized a quote about Muhammad and mountains, I think we can safely say it's time to go. Um, <laughs> yeah, so let's tell the fine people at home where we can be found between now and the next time. We will begin, of course, with our guest, Eric Marsh. Where can people find you online? Uh, at Marshlands. You got Twitter. that. That's you- me. That's that's impressive. Um, I I work at a distillery, and my friend and I were looking up um, things like you know mixed drinks. And this guy has the handle "How to Drink," and I was just like, I don't know what money he had to pay or who he had to murder to get that because that's just one of those ones where you're like, that probably went in the first thirty seconds of the internet being a thing, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so, I signed up in like 2009, so Marshlands was still available. That's awesome. All right, so that's an easy one. Uh, go check it out. Let's move on to Bill Graham. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at CableBFG. You can also find me on Instagram at BillStagram, uh, celebrating my dog's one-year birthday. Woo! I feel like BillStagram is another one of those where it's like you're lucky you got that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm lucky my name goes with 
with Instagram. <laughs> yeah. Well, I told you about my friend who has Instagram, right? G R A H A M. Oh, that's smart. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, like I guess that. sorry for blasting his uh his <laughs> Instagram <laughs> handle out. <laughs> Whatever. I'm sure he's fine. Um Michael Snydell, what about yourself? I'm on Twitter at, at Snydell. I got at Snydell. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Look at you go. I know there's a couple other Snydells. Fuck you. Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter at, at Snydell. I tweet too much there. Uh, Letterbox. Oh, intermission. Intermission is not done. Um, we had some technical difficulties, and so I didn't release a two episodes last week. But company. Uh, the original cast album, original cast album company <laughs> episode with Kyle Turner will be out this week. And I can say the next one is uh, Kelly Reichert's Certain Women with uh, Orla Smith from uh, Seventh Row, who you might have recently seen on our Cinephile Nights uh, that the film stage has been doing. Uh, what else? I'm not writing anything this week, but I will say somehow next week I got lucky enough to be assigned the Painted Bird, which if you know what that is, I'm going to be really mad about watching that, considering it's getting uh, compared to Solo. So, um, oh Jesus, <laughs> yeah, that's what you want in this day and age. Exactly. Uh, yeah, you can follow me there and look out for the new intermission very soon. It was a good one. We don't talk about Hamilton at all. All right. Uh, as for me, um, you can find me on all the social media sites at Brian J. Rowan. Yes, I got Brian J. Rowan. Um, I can't even remember. I think when I was a kid and I would write short stories and stuff, I would sign them Brian J. Rowan because it was like kind of pompous in the way that you expect an author's name to be. And I'm pretty sure that I only took it as a social media thing because another Brian Rowan swept through and got all the Brian Rowans first. So, yeah, so since we're all just explaining where we got our handles from. Um, sure. <laughs> but I've taken to it. I've, every episode I open up by saying uh, I'm your host, Brian J. Rowan. So that's did, it. That's did I, I am. explain how, how I got my, my Instagram handle? Cable BFG? It, Is it because you like the no, comic book cable character and the BFG? No, no, from the Doom? Instagram, Instagram, Instagram. Just the fact that it's Bill and an Instagram, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Um, you can find my writing and stuff at brianjrowan.com and also thefilmstage.com. I am very much looking forward to next week. Uh, we'll talk about some gore great stuff. And um, between now and then, if you'd like to listen to any other episodes of this year's podcast, you can go to thefilmstage.com. Also, Michael Snydell, I am so upset that you didn't say intermission is not over. You really got to lean into the fact that your thing is called intermission. I guess so, until I get sued, because I'm sure that's a name out there. But I'll come <laughs> to that bridge when it happens. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It'll be fine. I feel like you can't copyright intermission, right? Yeah. The I did producers... put a Prince song at the beginning of an episode, though, so that... that's the first one that goes, if anything goes. <laughs> the, uh, the producers of that Irish you know, Tarantino ripoff are going to come after you. Um <laughs> intermission good movie go check it out that is all for this week join us next week when we will talk about whatever it is that michael snydell said we were talking about next week ladies and gentlemen thank you so much for joining us and tune in next time 